Hello, this is Rabbi Mark Soloway. Welcome to A Dash of Drush, weekly reflections on our world through the lens of Torah. The big question for today is, what really happened on Mount Sinai? Last week we talked about redemption and that incredible miracle of the parting of the sea and the people coming through and finally they were free. And within a really short time of them being free, they're actually taking on a whole nother level of obligation. They're going, as it were, from being slaves to Pharaoh to servants of God through taking a commitment to the Torah. This, this Pasha, which is called Yitro, which interestingly is named after Moses' non-Jewish father-in-law, Jethro in English, Yitro. But the, 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 the centerpiece of this extraordinary reading is what we call Revelation at Mount Sinai. So what is Revelation at Mount Sinai? You know, the, the, the description in the Torah, Exodus 19, is like crazy, like the mountains quaking, there's smoke, the chauffeur is sounding, there's thunder and lightning, people are, are seeing what they would normally hear and hearing what they would normally see. It's what we might call synesthesia, some kind of altered state. And in that altered state, God's voice, as it were, comes down and through Moses, there is this receiving of Torah. Well, talking of mountains, Today we're actually recording from the mountains, about 10,000 feet up um, on, a, on a beautiful mountain day in Colorado. And I'm here with my old friend Nigel Savage. Nigel and I have known each other for more than 20 years since Limud days in the UK. And in the year 2000, Nigel founded an incredible organization called Chazon, which is the largest faith-based environmental organization in the country right now. And Nigel is currently the, the president and CEO of that organization. And he's here with me. And I have heard you, Nigel. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Mark. I've heard Nigel say uh, so many times in the founding of his organization, quoting this fantastic quote from Reb Shlomo Kalabach, who used to say, the Torah is a commentary on the world, and the world is a commentary on the Torah. So in this, in this section of Torah, where we're actually receiving the Torah, how is this story uh, a commentary on our world today? Do you have any thoughts on that, Nigel? So, um, so first of all, hi, and thank you for inviting me both existentially to the podcast and physically to this very beautiful place. Um, it's a funny question for me because I'm not a very theological Jew. One of the reasons that I didn't go to rabbinical school is because I really felt I didn't have the right kind of theology to be a rabbi. Um, for me, the Torah is a commentary on the world and the world is a commentary on the Torah. What's really interesting about it is that it challenges the buckets that we normally separate things into. Oh, over here, this is Jewish. This is synagogue and whether you keep kosher and stuff like that. And over here is the rest of our lives. And I think Reb Shlomo was saying that those things need to be in relationship with each other. And I think it's really true that as we go through the cycle of the year, and it's the same cycle every year and the same stories and the same holidays, they read freshly based on what's going on in the world so on the one hand as you said and I think we're not going to go there but the notion that this Pasha is about the relationship between a father-in-law and son-in-law where one is Jewish and one is not Jewish that's suddenly a fresh idea in 2017. <laughs> I right? have no many, idea what you're talking many, about. Many people are thinking about that in the Jewish community in a way that would have been very different a year ago but as you said we're not going to go there but um but so here's the thing I mean I'm I'm a civilian, I'm not a rabbi. It's a while since I read this, but I'm, I'm sitting here, and here are the Ten Commandments. 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. Don't have other gods. And suddenly it's this incredibly, to me, fresh, fascinating question. Why is it so critical to say that the very start of this whole thing that we came out of Egypt, we came out of the narrow places, and we came out of slavery. And I, I don't have a deep theology about Harsinai. I don't have a theology about God. But somehow or other, the notion that wrapped into the beginnings of the Jewish story is remembering, is, is, is you know, this kind of radical empathy, remembering that we were slaves. What does that mean right now, and how do I understand that differently? And it feels different right now. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about how it feels different? Hasina, by the way, is the mountain, the Mount Sinai, that that defining moment. Like whatever we believe or don't believe happened in that moment on Mount Sinai, in some way or another, defines what kind of Jew we are. If we really believe that the Torah was given in its entirety, then we're one kind of Jew. If we believe that it's a historical myth, then we're another kind of Jew. So you're saying you don't have a, a theological relationship with, with that moment of Sinai, that moment of revelation, but you do have a, a historical sense of connection to the narrative of what it means now that we're free. I don't, I don't necessarily, the omniscient, omnipotent God who is listening to our conversation right now, I mean, to be charitable, I would say I don't necessarily believe in that God, but that kind of a God. But of course, that's not true because I really don't believe in it at all. On the other hand, I'm proud to be Jewish because from my perspective, the tradition that we created is this tradition that imagines, forget what we mean by imagines for a moment, but imagines not merely the notion of a God, but the notion that every human being, young, old, straight, gay, rich, poor, Israeli, Palestinian, whatever, is made in the image of that God. And I think... I think that's why we've come into conflict with, with every inequalitarian society in history, from the Romans to, to Stalin and the Nazis, and to some extent to radical Islam today. Like anybody who thinks you're more equal than I am, at some point the Jewish community is actually going to object to that. But I'm interested, you're the rabbi, what do you think about Revelation? What does this mean to you? How has it changed over the years? I feel like I'm so drawn into the drama of Revelation. Like I do feel like just in the same way that the, that parting of the Red Sea, like the Israelites, in a sense, it was like a, coming through a birth canal. I said that last week, like the idea that they came into formation as a nation. But it, it was really like, how does a nation operate? How does a society operate if it doesn't have essential guiding principles so in a sense the fact that they went from freedom they weren't just going to go into some kind of anarchic sense of freedom there needed to be a sense of obligation and I think that's very very important a lot of people in our in our kind of modern world don't like religion because they feel like religion can't be you know the, the whole concept of something that's that's about law when it's to do with our spiritual life is 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 counter to a lot of people's worldview they think that if we if i'm spiritual then i'm not bound by any law like the civil world has law but actually religious law is really important and the torah as we understand the torah and the torah is such a broad concept I mean, it's such an incredibly broad concept. I mean, there's this fantastic story that asks the question, like, 
what was revealed on Mount Sinai and one opinion says it was the whole Torah every single word of the Torah that we have today and the next opinion says no 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 it wasn't the whole Torah it was just these Ten Commandments that we're talking about right now and then the third opinion says no it wasn't the Ten Commandments it was the first two of the Ten Commandments which actually Nigel just read I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods behind me that's just those first two and people think well if you're going to just pick two of them those are two pretty good ones and then another voice comes and says no it wasn't even the first two of the first ten it was just the first word of the first commandment the word anochi the word that says i as if we're we're supposed to have some kind of sense of the 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 quality the 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 sense of god's anichiut like god's sense of i-ness and then the final voice comes in and says no it wasn't even the first word of the first commandment it was just the first letter of the first word of the first commandment which is the letter aleph and people said but wait a minute the letter aleph's a silent letter and the, and, the, and the guy says, no, it's not entirely silent. It's that little breath that we have to take before there's a conversation. Just like you and I are having a conversation today, there's, there's a moment of pause that has to happen before any real conversation can happen. And so this idea in much of our tradition that really what happened at Mount Sinai was a conversation between God, however we perceive or don't perceive God, and a community that was forming itself as a community. And part of that conversation is like, how do we live spiritual lives and ethical lives because the Torah is constructed we understand as as, be, as having 613 mitzvot 613 commandments that number has come to in a whole complicated way which we won't go into right now but out of those commandments some of them are things that we are to do like the ta'aseh the positive so-called mitzvot you will do this and other than whether you will not do that and then some of them are what we call mitzvot that are between us and God which are like more spiritual ritual like keeping kosher having a, a a prayer life etc and um, and and those those are you know known as, as as commandments that are between us and God and then there's also the mitzvot ben adam lechavaro which are like ethical how do we construct ethical societies that's a big part of the project of Torah how we create ethical societies so the Torah as a as a the sense of something that that was revealed on Mount Sinai is is very very complicated. But I think there's um, there's a very powerful midrash that says kol echad lefi kocho that every single individual who was there that day received what their what they had the capacity to receive. So some people heard something very different to what other people heard, and depending you know depending where you were standing on the mountain and who you were with and what group you were with, you received something very different. There's no absolute sense of Torah. Do, I mean... I, I, I think I want to take it in a very slightly different way. As you were talking, what I was thinking about, of course, is just this notion of commandedness. And I was thinking about the tension between the notion... And, of course, we're two Brits living in America. And interesting, the word Brit in Hebrew, is that where you were about to go? No, I wasn't The word that. Brit in Hebrew actually means covenant. covenant, so we're Brits talking Wait. about the Brit, but yes. Um, so we didn't grow up with this notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? We've each learned that as a piece of what this country is about. And it's interesting that Jewish tradition doesn't have any notion, I think, of the pursuit of happiness. What it happens, I think, is the opposite. And the opposite is something like Ol Malchut Shamayim. And Ol Malchut Shamayim, which, which literally means something like bearing the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. But, but what it really means is something, it means 
it, it means essentially an obligation to keep the mitzvot, that the nature of being Jewish is to keep the mitzvot. And to the extent that Jewish tradition has, I think, any understanding of how happiness arises, I think it thinks that it is not something that you pursue, but that in fact by, by striving to be a good Jew and a good person, you will end up along the way enjoying simcha, which Jonathan Sachs translates as the joy that we share with others. Very different from, from the sort of modern notion of happiness. Now what's interesting about this is how challenging it is to me. Because on the one hand, I actually really believe that. I really believe that a key, whatever revelation is about, a key piece of it is the notion that we don't just pick and choose, that we're obligated, that there is something external to us that requires of us to do or not do certain things. And so here I am, on the one hand, I really believe that, and I really believe that that's central to Jewish tradition. And on the other hand, I'm not a consistently observant halachic Jew. So it's great. I really believe that the tradition requires us to do or not do certain things, and yet, of course, I'm a contemporary Jew, which is to say, I'm not consistently halachically observant. And so that challenge between believing that the tradition requires us to do and not do certain things, and yet, at the same time, I don't do that. Like, that's the, that's the challenge of contemporary Jewish life. Like, that's the edge. And it's, I would say, an edge, an edge for all of us as individuals and civilians. And truthfully, it's an edge for rabbis. Sounds like you're a reconstructionist, really. I mean, Mordechai Kaplan, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who's seen as the spiritual founder of Reconstruction, did talk about the sense of mitzvot, of keeping the commandments, but not as being divinely commanded by some outside God, but that were about how we kept community together. So, you know, that, that he, he used the term folkways, but so in that sense that you do believe that there is intrinsic value in, this, in the structure that we have, which some people might call halakha, but of Ju Jewish practice, regardless of what you believe or don't believe to be true. But this is the deep catch-22. This is where on the one hand, we are all Reconstructionists today, and we are all Kaplanians in one sense, in a formal sense. And yet in a different sense, I think that we've seen that liberal, liberal religion is deeply flawed. Like, as soon as you make it that humanistic, as soon as you put us in the middle of it and make everything a matter of volitional choice, something incredibly intrinsic to Jewish life gets thrown out. And so that's... That's the, in my view, that's the contemporary postmodern challenge. I'm too, I'm too modern or postmodern to be able to believe in this literally, on the one hand, and yet I'm actually too deeply rooted in Jewish tradition to feel comfortable in saying, oh yeah, we all get to choose. That's to me why it's an edge. If, if I were really happy with that humanistic read on it, then fine, I could just be a liberal Jew and, you know, we'll all decide what to do. And of course, that's the catch-22, because I do make choices about what to do and not do. And yet I also want to hear the, the voice of the tradition acting upon me. If it's not making me do certain things that I don't want to do or not do certain things that I do want to do, then I don't, think, I don't think I'm being a good enough Jew. I can't speak for anybody else. I really like that. I mean, I think that is absolutely the edge. And yes, I'm a rabbi. And yes, maybe I'm more observant in some ways than you are. But I don't think that lets me off the hook for still being 
in that same essential tension because I feel in that intention absolutely I don't believe literally in God's voice coming down and speaking to Moses in this profound moment I believe in the drama of it and I want to go back to the word that you used before which was about imagination because I think that's a big key to it we have to have as a community we have to have an imagination to say that even if we don't believe this is literally true is there some way in which our imagination can take us to some profound moment that was transformative that created a, a people to whom we still connect today and that we are still bound by the same basic moral and ethical and spiritual structures as they were regardless of the source of that i mean do, do, i mean because i i'm i'm very very uh fascinated by the whole idea of imagination in a spiritual sense because even the, the rabbis often, they, they, they have this word ki'ilu that they talk about. A lot of the time they use this word ki'ilu, which really means as if, as if, as if it were this. We know it's not really this. We know that when you're taking three steps forward and you're, and you're, you're going into your prayer, we know you're not really like bowing before God because we don't even know who. But they say, as if you are standing before a king. So we have to have, in order to have a rich spiritual life and I would argue even a rich moral life we have to have good imaginations and we live in a world where uh, in a sense the ability to have imagination is taken away from us you know whether it's a universe of alternative facts or or a kind of this idea that there is there is no uh, not only is there no objective truth there's no objective sense of, of, of facts but like somehow I think the key to all of that is having an imagination but it's an imagination that's not just about I can make up whatever I want. It's about having an imagination that allows me to connect to something very strong and powerful and transcendent. And I think I want to just bring that down slightly and put it in different terms. I'm very struck that um, your father had died this year and you've been staying Kaddish. And we were here in the mountains and you wanted a minion to be able to say Kaddish the night before last. And it was a really interesting thing to see you reach out to somebody you knew who might know somebody else to see if we could put a minion together. And lo and behold, a minion came together. And what was very fascinating for me to observe was the place where you were incredibly grateful that this somewhat random group of people came together to enable you to say Kaddish, which in a sense was calling upon obligations, right? Was calling upon the deep understanding in the tradition that you can say to somebody, hey, I need a minion for Kaddish will you come and be part of that minion? But what was fascinating about it was that this random group of people who came didn't, I think, in any single case, have the sense of, oh, what a pain in the ass that this guy has had me to do this. I think every single one without exception was so thrilled to be here, was so thrilled to be able to be part of this impromptu minion. And at some level was, was understood, each person differently, that the nature of community is interwoven with this sense of obligation. And that the ability to enable person A, in this case you, to obligate person B, somebody you know, and person C, somebody who they know, because it is understood that we need a minion for Kaddish, that's what all of this is when it comes down. And the interesting question for contemporary Jewish life is, where are the places that that works and where are the places that it doesn't work and what do we need to do to more deeply engender that ability both to obligate ourselves and to allow ourselves to be obligated by others that is 
an incredibly deep question, and I'll reflect a little, seeing as you went there personally, that my experience has been in this year of mourning, that when I've felt myself connected to communities with whom I have no actual relationship, but who themselves have an enormous relationship to the tradition. So if I go to an Orthodox synagogue, for instance, where I know for sure they are going to be uh, having services for Shachari in the morning and for Minchamari for the afternoon and evening services, and I can just join in and I know the prayers and I can be part of that community. It's given me a profound sense of connection to people that I do not know. And sometimes in our own communities, you know, like you were saying about um, whether it's that we're postmodern or, or whatever it is, we, we wrestle with that understanding of obligation. It's not a given. And I think that. It's a very powerful question. I think it's, the, it's, I think it's the question for this. If we're talking about the Torah is a commentary on the world and the world is a commentary for the Torah, on the Torah, like how is this story of revelation where a community came into a sense of knowing that they had obligations to certain principles, how does that speak to us as contemporary Jews where we don't have that same sense of obligation and yet we do in some cases and perhaps especially now in this in this world that feels so confusing in so many different ways that that we need to find our ways back to to have that sense of I mean I like the Hebrew word chiyuv chiyuv is the Hebrew word that is usually translated as, as obligation it really means like this sense that I I am required to do certain things as part of my religious obligation I'm required to do certain things and Judaism has, has I think very successfully um, formed itself as a religion that's really so much more about practice than it is about belief. Because actually you can show up and do those things regardless of whether you believe in any kind of God or not. You can show up and be part of a minion. You can show up in all kinds of ways. And I think that's the, that's the I think that's a fundamental difference, by the way, between Judaism and Christianity. Judaism is a very practical religion. It's a, Ju- it's a religion of practice. It's not a religion of of, of of belief in, in, in some, I mean, yes, there are certain tenets that we're supposed to believe. Maimonides in the Middle Ages had, you know, his, his, his statements of, of belief, I, I believe with, you know, absolute faith in certain things. But, but fundamentally what's kept Judaism alive has been the, the, the practice, not, not the faith, not the, not the belief. And I, was, I think we need that right now. I was thinking, as you were talking, I was just looking it up, the the start of Shacharit, you say the bracha for reading the Torah. And then because we say that bracha, we have to learn a piece bracha of Torah. Bracha is a blessing, by the way. And so there's this thing that says, these are the things that a person derives the benefits of them, both in this world and the world to come, which is a rabbinic way of saying, these are the things that are really important. Ve'eluhan, and these are these. Kibbut av'aim, honoring your father and mother. Gemilut chasidim, being kind to other people. Hashkamat betamitra shacharit varavit, going to shul and going there on time. Hachnasat Orchim, welcoming guests. Bikurchalim, visiting the sick. Hachnasat Kala, actually honoring the bride, the bride and groom. Ulvayat Hamait, that was what reminded me because of honoring the dead. And, and I was remembering Reb Shlomo Kalba saying, quoting that and saying, if it is important to honor the dead, Kalvachoma, how much more so to honor, as it were, the living dead, like people who are alive and who are suffering. What's interesting is that all of those things are places where arguably traditional Jewish communities function in certain respects better than many contemporary liberal communities. And apart from maybe, you know, attending shul 
these are not things that are actually religion narrowly construed. You can be a good Christian or a good Muslim and visit the sick and honor the dead and honor the bride and so on. And yet somehow or other traditional community, like part of the nature of Jewishness has been a place where people said these words and really believed that it was not volitional whether I not only make the minion for Kaddish, but also whether I go and visit this sixth person and also whether I show up in shul, whether I want to or not. And, and the question is, how do we do that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's based on an assumption that we live in communities that care about each other enough that um, it becomes intuitive. And I think that's why it's, it's languaged in the way of religious obligation because it's not always a given that we're going to just show up through our own volition. Well, you know, I realize that's actually how it comes back, funnily enough, to Revelation at Sinai because, of course, it ends up the Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam which is actually saying that it is through the process of learning Torah that these behaviors get Absolutely. inculcated into us. Absolutely. Tamat Torah Keneged Kulam, like, which can be translated as the study of Torah is greater than all of these other things, is, a, I think, a very wrong translation. It actually means if we really get what the Torah is saying to us, then we will, how can we not live lives that will include all of these things because that's what Torah really is. I think that might be a good... A good note to, to end on. I, 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 it's an incredible story, really worth reading again, Exodus chapters 19 and 20, that whole fiery mountain kind of scene and the revelation. And perhaps this has helped a little bit broaden the understanding of what that revelation might be and how it continues to impact us today. There are all these teachings that say the voice from Sinai still echoes in our generation. It's still echoing every moment we're hearing it. The question is, what are we hearing? And how is it uh, allowing us to transform in a world where we're all needed to, to show up and be, be part of community right now, whether that's obligations to each other, to ourselves, or ultimately to a God, whether we believe in that God or not. So thank you so much for listening. And... Uh, May we all have revealed to us this week exactly what we need to be revealed. Can you son? Thank you. Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to Adash and Drush. We will see you next time.